Our sermon today is titled, The Guilty King. The Guilty King. We're going to start with a quick prayer, and we're going to get into Matthew chapter 27. Father in heaven, today we pause to recognize and to say in our prayer that you are God. And we recognize that you are God, and we come to you in the name of Jesus Christ. Father, we also want to learn from Scripture, and we believe that this is a spiritual enterprise. It's not merely an intellectual or a human enterprise. Something else is happening here, something supernatural, something that is greater and bigger and deeper than just what's taking place on the surface. Father, we're asking for your Spirit to come into our hearts, into our minds, into our wills. And Father, especially today, as we're once again at the cross, like we just sang a moment ago, that old rugged cross... Father, if this can't melt the heart, if this can't bend the will, if this can't penetrate the conscience, what could? And so we come now today pleading. I am pleading, Father, as you know I was early this morning, for the Spirit of God to come into this hall, into these hearts, into this message, so that we will come away, not just aware of the cross, perhaps in a deeper or more meaningful or more biblical way, but we will be moved by the cross and the God of the cross. Father, show us today yourself in the text. And Father, show us ourselves in the text. We stand in anxious anticipation of what you have in store for us. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Let everyone say, Amen. Join me in Matthew chapter 27, if you would. Matthew chapter 27, the penultimate chapter to the first gospel of the New Testament, Matthew chapter 27. Last week, we made our ways, our, made our way through verse 26. We went from chapter 1 all the way through to, or, or excuse me, verse 1 all the way through to verse 26. Today, we're going to go from 27 down to about 57. So we'll be in 30 verses today, pretty much the second half of the gospel of Matthew chapter 27. Here's our seven chapters that we've been working through in our series on Matthew. Jesus as son, as preacher, as healer. Jesus as leader, teacher, seer, and now Jesus as conqueror, but conquering in a most unexpected way. Jesus conquers by apparently being conquered himself. By ending up on a Roman instrument of torture, we are in Matthew chapter 27. As we noted last week, especially in light of the suicide of Judas... And we identified with Judas and also with Pilate and with Barabbas. Guilt has to go somewhere. Guilt will not just remain latent and and compartmentalized. It oozes out. It has to end up somewhere. And if guilt does not have a way of being discharged, it will result in our ultimate demise, death, and destruction. It happened early with Judas by way of suicide, but it will happen with all people who do not give their guilt to the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. We looked at Matthew chapter 27, verse 25, where the people take upon themselves the responsibility that Pilate and the religious leaders were unwilling to bear. And they do so in a most pregnant way, in a most significant way, in a a really theologically profound way. They don't know, of course, that there's theological profundity in what they're saying. Their response is, when when Pilate's like, who do you want? They're like, give us Barabbas. And he's like, well, what should I do with Jesus? And they're like, oh, crucify him. And he's like, what? he hasn't done any evil. And then they say, let his blood be on us and on our children. The theological depth and profundity of that is fantastic because, of course, that is the only means by which salvation can come. 
What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Right? His blood be upon us. They are saying, hey, we'll be culpable. We'll, we will take the ownership and the moral responsibility for what's taking place here. But really, there's a depth and there's, a, there's something going on underneath this in which they are actually announcing the only means by which salvation is available, and that is his blood, the blood of Jesus be upon us. And that's what we talked about last week. This week, we find ourselves with Jesus being turned over to the Romans to the soldiers to be mocked and ultimately crucified. Join me in verse 27. Matthew chapter 27, verse 27. We'll read several verses here. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole garrison around him, and they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. And when when they had twisted a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and a reed in his right hand, and they bowed the knee before him, and they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! Then they spat on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they took the robe off him, put his own clothes back on him, and led him away to be crucified. We open our presentation today, our sermon today, with something that is frankly shocking, it is confronting, and it's just difficult to imagine. Frankly, it's difficult to imagine anybody being treated like this. Anybody being treated like this. Right? But this isn't just anybody. This is the incarnate Son of God who is willingly, voluntarily, meekly, and humbly submitting himself to the cruel and humiliating torture of the Roman guards. This is where the Gospel of Matthew and the ministry of Jesus have been going all along. Jesus has been saying this for months and years at this point. And while it might strike us as a bit shocking and a bit confronting and and frankly something that we don't want to even think about, this is where Matthew's been taking this ship all along. When Jesus consents voluntarily to the mockery and to the derision of the Roman centurions, he is manifesting the way, and we're going to get to this a little bit later, he is manifesting the way that God responds to, to abuse, the way that God responds to injustice and to cruelty. I love the way that N.T. Wright paints this picture here. Do the Roman centurions believe that they're doing something of theological significance? Of course they don't, right? These are soldiers. These are people that, that are just, you know, they're, they're out in a faraway garrison, a long way from Rome. They don't want to be there. They do not believe there is any particular significance to this quiet, mousy, you know, Jew of a man And they certainly don't think they're doing anything of particular religious or theological significance. And I love the way that N.T. Wright paints this picture. The soldiers mocking Jesus had nothing to gain financially by dressing him up as a king and pretending to salute him and kneel down before him. They had other things in mind. They had been fighting what today we would call terrorists, Jewish rebels against Rome, desperate for liberty, ready to do anything. And the Roman soldiers had probably seen some of their friends killed by these Jewish terrorists. They were tired of policing such a place far away from their homes, having to keep the lid on a volatile and dangerous situation with all kinds of rebel groups ready to riot. Now here was someone who had been accused of trying to make himself king of the Jews. That was his accusation. He was going to die within hours. Hey, why not have a bit of fun at his expense? Why not tease him? Why not beat him up a bit? And show what the Romans think of other people's kings. 
right? So the Romans don't understand, the centurions don't understand that they're doing something of tremendous theological depth and profundity here. The, the whole crown and the scarlet robe and the reed in the hand, they're just having fun, right? They're having fun and they're annoyed at the Jews. They're annoyed at their station in life. They're annoyed that they're so far away from home. Here's somebody whose accusation is not murder. It's not robbery. It's not, you know, uh, uh, anything of this nature. His accusation is, hey, this is a king of the Jews. Like, hey, look, here's their king. Why are you so quiet? Why aren't you carrying on? Why aren't you resisting? They had dealt with a lot of people, and the Roman centurions had very unlikely, in fact, certain, certainly, had never seen someone respond to cruelty and to abuse and to mockery like this. And Jesus' quiet and Jesus' meekness and humility only further caused them to like, hey, hey let's take advantage of the situation. Let's press the point. Again, they don't think they're making any religious significance. Now, of course, there is tremendous religious significance. There is tremendous theological depth of what's going on here. But they're just doing what soldiers do when they're stationed at a far away garrison. Jesus is mocked by the soldiers and others because he doesn't look like a king. And this point just has to rest upon us. It just has to, to rest up. Jesus bears, he looks nothing like Caesar. He looks nothing like the kings of this world. He bears no resemblance to a political monarch. He bears no resemblance to a powerful person. I mean, you just let the, the irony, in fact, this part of the narrative is just saturated with irony from start to finish. I mean, here is the most powerful being in the universe acting as though he possesses no power at all. Here is the true king being mocked as a king, being mistreated and humiliated and maligned as the king. The irony is just saturative in the narrative here. And here again, what we see is that this is how God responds to abuse. This is how God responds to cruelty. It's how he responds to violence. Not violence with violence, not cruelty with cruelty, not sword with sword. He submits himself to the violence, to the mockery, to the cruelty. This is the heart of God on display. We mentioned this before a couple sermons ago, our sermon titled Swords and Lords. This isn't a one-time show here. Because when John sees, transitioning briefly out of the Gospel of Matthew to the book of Revelation, and we'll talk about this next year, when John sees the throne of the universe, the throne of the universe is occupied by a slain lamb. I want to say that again. The throne of the universe symbolically depicted in the book of Revelation is, is occupied by a lamb slain. So this meek, mild, vulnerable, retiring figure that we see being pushed around and, and uh, you know, humiliated by the Roman soldiers, that's not God just like temporarily like, okay, I'll put up with this nonsense for a bit, but you just wait till I get my hands on you. This is God being God. This is the heart of God on display. It's not a one-off. It's not like, okay, I'll tolerate this momentarily. This is who God is. He submits himself to violence, to cruelty, to injustice, to oppression, to humiliation. Rather than inflicting those things, and as we've already seen in the, in the situation there in the garden where Jesus said plainly to Peter, put your sword away because if you take the sword out, you die by the sword. You live by the sword, you die by the sword. Put that away. Some battles, some wars cannot be won with violence. They cannot be won with metal. They cannot be won with weaponry. So what we see, even though the, Jew, the, the, excuse me, the Roman soldiers do not believe they are doing anything of particular religious significance or depth, what they're actually doing is profoundly uh, meaningful religiously and theologically. They are giving us an opportunity to see on full display the heart of God. 
A heart that voluntarily, willingly submits itself to abuse, injustice, cruelty, violence, mockery, pain. And again, this isn't a one-off. Because when John sees Jesus on the throne of the universe in the book of Revelation, he sees a lamb as if it had been slain. We've noted this point and we'll note it again. The cross belongs to the way God rules the world. I want to say that again. The cross belongs to the way God rules the world. If you understand that, I want you to say amen. Hugely significant. Lotus Craig S. Keener, in his commentary on Matthew, he lays hold on this point with, with tremendous clarity. That Jesus submitted to such abuse reminds the reader that power does not function in God's kingdom the way it does in the world. Any person observing that situation, right? Any, uh, any journalist, any bystander observing that situation would say, hey, look, someone in this situation possesses lots of power and others in this situation possess no power at all. Who has the power in this situation? No one would say the man who's been dressed up, crown of thorns on the head, treated with mockery, humiliated, and a reed placed in his hand, no one would say, that's the guy with the power. That's the guy in control of the situation. That's the guy who really possesses true power. Any observer would say, well, clearly the ones that are in power are the ones with the metal, the ones with the swords, the one with the spears, the ones with the muscles, and the powerless is the one who's getting pushed around and jockeyed between them. Keener's point is profound here. He's saying, look, when we see God submitting to this kind of cruelty and abuse, this tells us that when God thinks of power, he doesn't think of it in terms of muscle and metal. There's another power here. There's a whole other subtext going on. And it's that power doesn't look like we think it looks. Strength doesn't look like what we think it looks like because the cross, the vulnerable, the humiliated, the exposed, the seemingly weak, the seemingly defeated, that is where true power resides. To voluntarily, willingly submit yourself to the cruelty, humiliation, and abuse of others, Scripture is telling us that's where true power resides. True power resides not in retaliation, but in taking it. Not in violence, but in nonviolence. Not in aggression, but in passivity. There's a point here that we just need to make. We've made this going well back into our series on Matthew. We talked about how do we know that these things are true? How do historians evaluate truthfulness when we're dealing with events, not that are 10 years ago or even 100 years ago, but events that are hundreds of years ago or even in some cases thousands of years ago? How do we know if something is true and historical record? And historians, they don't arrive at proof in the same way that, say, a chemist would or a mathematician would or a physicist would. Historians use criteria of authenticity, and there are a number of historical criteria of authenticity. We've covered this before, but this is a really good point, a case in point where I want to show you again why we can take the Gospels seriously. Here are several criteria of authenticity that are used by historians to determine whether or not something is historically valid and authentic. For example, you have the criterion of dissimilarity. Okay, when things aren't exactly, if, if everything sounds exactly the same, if everything, it sounds like collusion. So you have that as a criteria. You have the criterion of language and environment. Does it sound like it was written in that period, in that age, at that time? 
You have the criterion of coherence. Does the story, does it fit together? Does it cohere internally and does it cohere with the larger uh, language and environment of the day? You have the criteria of multiple attestation. Rather than having just a single instance or a single record of this event, are there lots of people that write about this event? Right? And the more that you have writing about an event, it tends to increase historical likelihood or veracity. And then finally, as one we've mentioned several times, is what historians call the criterion of embarrassment. The criterion of embarrassment. When something is recorded in which the protagonist or protagonists in the story are exposed to something that's humiliating or potentially embarrassing, and that is not screened out through later writers. It's not like, oh, man, that's kind of embarrassing. Let's leave that part out. When things make their way through the centuries that are potentially embarrassing to either the believers, in this case of a religious cause, or to the protagonist, historians say, hey, that's likely to have happened. That, very, that has the ring of truth to it, and right here is a great case in point. Here's some of them that we've mentioned before. Here's a few examples in the Gospel of Matthew of, of, of embarrassment and its criterion as a measure of truth, historical truth. The inclusion of Gentile women in Jesus' uh, genealogy, Mary's divine conception, which sounded a lot like pagan uh, stories as well, Jesus' dubious, miraculous birth. Hey, that's kind of embarrassing Jesus first being received, not by his own people, but by foreigners. Not just foreigners, but by astrologers who were sort of looked at uh, funny uh, by the Jews. Jesus comes from an obscure hometown. He's baptized by a lesser person, John. We've mentioned these all before. But here's one we're adding today. Jesus' mockery, humiliation, and abuse. Why record that? See, a historian will look at that and say, why tell that part? Why tell that story? And the answer is likely because it happened. There's a really good reason why you would record that. Because it happened. It it doesn't make Jesus look good. It doesn't make Jesus look powerful. Frankly, it's potentially embarrassing. Who wants to worship a king that can be pushed around and jockeyed between a bunch of Roman soldiers? It it doesn't look good. And so here, even in this mockery, we have this, this, this further validation through the criterion of embarrassment that this is very, very likely to have happened. I'm speaking strictly from an historical, secular historical perspective. Let's continue on now. After Jesus' mockery at the hands of the soldiers, verse 32, it says, Now as they came out, they of course put his regular clothes back on him, so it's some semblance of normalcy. As they came out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. That was a common name in the first century. And they compelled him to bear his cross. There is some pretty cool stuff going on here that we're not going to take any time to really illumine or to elucidate. But there is maybe one fascinating point. It's it's perhaps a little serendipitous. It's curious that the person who ends up bearing the cross of Jesus is Simon. And it was another Simon who just hours before had said to Jesus, if everybody forsakes you, I won't. In fact, Jesus, if I have to die with you, I will do. If I had to carry your cross, Simon is effectively saying, I would do it. Of course, Peter is nowhere to be found. He has, he has gone away at the, the accusation and the identification by a few girls in the, in the larger court. Peter has disappeared, but hey, it's like, hey, hey, we, this man's too weak. This man, this man has been through, we don't know what he's been through. He's weakened, he's amazing, he can't carry. They didn't carry the whole cross. They carried just what was called the patabellum, which was the, the cross bar. And he would carry that, and he's too weak to carry it. So they're like, hey, hey, they grab some random Jewish guy 
who just serendipitously happens to be named Simon. Simon is here doing what the disciples are unavailable to do. And man, there's a little lesson in this. If the church is unavailable to do the things that the church has been called to do and asked to do, and in some cases the church has said, hey, we'll do that, then God will just raise up other people to do it. God can just take somebody randomly out of the crowd and just, God can, take a, God can just take that person out of the crowd. If, if the Kingscliff Seventh-day Adventist Church or the larger worldwide Seventh-day Adventist Church wants to sit around on its hands and not do the things that we're called to do and that we're asked to and that we should be doing, God is not impotent by our uh, uh, inactivity, by our apathy. God can just reach into the crowd and pull out somebody else and say, hey, I need you to do what they should be doing. And when they had come to the place called Golgotha, that is to say the place of the skull, they gave him sour wine mingled with gall to drink. But when he tasted it, he would not drink. Then they crucified him and divided his garments, casting lots that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet. Even here, Matthew wants you to know that there is fulfillment. They divided my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. He's quoting here from Psalm 22. We're not going to spend any time looking at the subtext of Psalm 22. We're going to do that in a future message. Sitting down, they kept watch over him there. And they put up over his head the accusation written against him, which was common in first century crucifixions. You would put the robber, thief, murderer, uh, uh, treasonous. You'd put it over the head. That was not uncommon. So the accusation that goes over Jesus, the placard that hangs above his head on the Roman cross, this is Jesus, another common first century name, Yeshua, King of the Jews. There's several things that are going on here that's quite interesting. First of all, notice how Matthew does not go into the details of the crucifixion. You wouldn't expect him to. In keeping with first century sensitivities, we are not told in great detail about what crucifixion looked like. We know from other historical records that crucifixion is a terrible, humiliating, uh, an, impossible, an impossibly painful and difficult situation to imagine. Matthew goes into none of those details. He simply says they crucified him there. Matthew knows that his audience will know what that means. That means nakedness. That means bodily wastes just leaking out over the course of sometimes days. It means flies landing on you, laying their eggs in you, an inability to swat things away. It, it means uh, birds landing there. It, 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 it means a whole lot of things. It's a gross, disgusting, dirty, humiliating, ignominious picture, and Matthew doesn't spend any real time on it because of Jewish sensitivities, because of first century sensitivities. I mean, it's really quite funny. It's fascinating, I should say. Fascinating is a better word than funny. Today we wear, you know, not we, but there are people that put crosses on their, cross tattooed on their arm. They wear a cross around their neck. Even on gravestones and things, people get crosses. And we today, because of what's happening here with Jesus, we have come to associate the cross with a lot of really beautiful, wonderful things, noble things, forgiveness and mercy and humility and and salvation. Like we see the cross as a venerable symbol. Okay, No first century person would have seen the cross as a venerable symbol. The cross would have been something more analogous to like a toilet, but worse, right? Like it'd be like wearing a toilet around your neck or getting a toilet tattooed on you. it's, it's It's not a thing that you put on display. 
A cross is a place of torture. It's a place of humiliation. It's a place of Roman cruelty. It's a place of nakedness. It's a place of bodily fluids. It's a place of terrible smells. And the cross is not something to be celebrated. And Matthew, in keeping with, with first century, he just, he said, they crucified him. He knows that his readers will know what that means. Crucifixion, of course, is not about death. Death is a piece of cake. The Romans were experts at killing people. They had these beautiful swords and spears and knives. I mean, a Roman centurion could kill you in seconds. Just slit your throat, put a sword through your heart. I mean, this is not about death. The cross is not about killing. The cross is about humiliation. In fact, the word excruciating, excruciating comes literally from the Latin. That means ex, out of, like the word exit, and crucia, out of the cross. A whole new word was, was, was created to communicate the depth of humility and uh, the depth of humiliation and pain that, that oozes from the cross. And we sing about it like it's this glorious, happy, venerable, beautiful symbol, that old rugged cross. And it is that, but it wasn't to first century peoples. This is why Paul later, when Paul will go into various towns and he'll be preaching about a crucified Messiah, the people are like, what? Are you kidding? You might as well be talking about a square circle or a, or a wet desert or a dry sea. A crucified Messiah? It's absurd, and it's not just absurd, it's scandalous. And frankly, it's, a, it's an affrontery to common sense. This is why Paul calls it, he calls it a scandalon in the Greek. When we preach that to the Jews, he says, a crucified Messiah, a Messiah they say, that's a scandal. Jesus here submits himself to the cross. The cross is not about death. The cross is about humiliation. It's about despair. We know from historical records that some people spent as long as a week on the cross dying. The idea is to get you to that place where you are poised precariously between life and death. Embracing the inevitable outcome. You will die, but it will happen incrementally. It will happen fractionally. It will happen slowly. Of course, Jesus just spends a few short hours on the cross because he's already been depleted by the internal soul wrestling that's happening in Gethsemane. We'll get to that next week. What's happening to Jesus, I cannot wait till next week, is not about nails and wood. What's happening to Jesus is, is a level of iceberg stability that, that the, the, the mere act of a crucifixion cannot even begin to explain. Matthew passes over that. But Matthew does want you to be absolutely clear about something, that Jesus is guilty of his accusation. This is the third time that this has now come up. Notice in verse 11, Pilate asks Jesus, Are you the king of the Jews? It is as you say. We talked about that last week. Here the placard is placed over Jesus. This is Jesus, the king of the Jews. In just a few short verses, we'll get there in a second, but jump ahead to verse 42. The mockers say he saved others himself, he cannot save. If he is the king of Israel. Matthew wants you to get this point, he wants you to get it clear. Jesus was guilty of the accusation against him. His accusation was not robber, was not thief, was not murderer, was not rapist, was not kidnapper, was not brigand. The accusation is, this is the king of the Jews. Matthew makes the point again and again. Let's read in verse 38. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and the other on the left. And those who passed by blasphemed him, 
wagging their heads in disbelief and incredulity with a sort of superiority about them. And they said, ah, come on, you who destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. And then this key word, the operative word, if, if you are the son of God, come down from the cross. Similarly, the chief priests and the elders mocked him. The scribes and the elders said, he saved others himself, he cannot save. If, operative word, he is the king of Israel, let him now come down from the cross and we will believe him. He trusted in God, let him deliver him. Now, if he will have him, he himself said, I am the son of God. Even the robbers who were crucified with him reviled him with the same thing. Notice that, that, that he is mocked in verse 29 by the Roman centurions. He has his heads are wagged at him in verse 39 by the passers-by. The chief priests and scribes join in in mockery, and even the robbers who are with him reviled him. I don't know everybody in this room, but I guarantee that even though I don't know you personally, and I do know some of you personally, and I know some of you very well, I am certain about this in, for every person in this room. You do not like to be made fun of. Nobody likes that. We can sometimes, if, if we're like in the pecking order, the social pecking order, we can kind of pretend for a moment like, ha, 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 ha. We can sort of like pretend for a moment. But, but everybody in this room, if you were given the choice to be made fun of, to be mocked, to be reviled, or not, everybody says, I don't want to be made fun of. I don't want to be mocked. See, what's happening here, and we'll get to this next week in greater detail, what's happening here is not just about wooden nails. There is an emotional package that's going on here. There is a spiritual package that's going on here. There is a psychological portfolio that's going on here. And all of this is playing together in a satanic cacophony, a symphonic, a satanic symphony to try and bring the maximum amount of pain, despair, humiliation, and hopelessness to the man Jesus. Everybody's mocking him. This guy does not look like a king. He's a naked, bleeding, bruised and battered Jew hanging on a Roman cross with his hilarious, outlandish (laughs) accusation above his head. Here's the king of the Jews. All of these Jews, these crazy, wild, weird, circumcising people, this is what their king looks like. There's just a whole lot of mockery going on here. And Jesus is at the center of it. And I want to say here again, this is not God like powerless. Like, oh man, they caught me. Oh, I guess I have to go through this. But just wait till I get my strength back. Wait till I get my power back. I'm going to get you. This is not a moment. This is not an instance in, in who and what God is. This is how God responds to situations like this. It's a virtual guarantee that this is not how you and I respond to situations like this. We want to get out of these situations. We want to, we want to be, we do not want to be certainly humiliated, certainly crucified, etc. But we don't even like to be made fun of. We don't even like to be the person on the outside. Jesus is all of them. And next week when we get into Psalm 22, we'll look at the larger emotional, psychological package that's going on here. But what Matthew does, when this phrase, if you are the son of God, is raised by the passers-by, every reader of Matthew is already immediately thinking straight back to the temptation in the wilderness. The temptation in the wilderness is where we first encountered this phrase, and I've put here to sort of help you to see the three temptations in the wilderness. If you are the Son of God, cause these stones to be made bread. 
If you're the son of God, save yourself. That's what was happening in the wilderness. That's what's happening here at the cross. If you are the son of God, change circumstances to benefit yourself. Save yourself. There is no mention of Satan, by the way, in Matthew chapter 27. There's very little mention of Satan really in the gospel of Matthew at all. But Matthew is making his point and he's making it well. This is the echo, this is the reverberation of that Luciferian voice, that satanic voice that we encountered all the way back in Matthew chapter 3. If you really are who you say you are, save yourself. The second temptation was, if you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from the temple. Tempt fate, but be rescued from death at the last moment as the angels bear you up on their wings. If you are the Son of God, look at how close you've come to death. Look at, you are right on the very precipice of death. Now you can come down. Come down now. The similarity here is fascinating. Throw yourself down. Come down. Matthew is making a point. Though no, na- though no mention of Satan is made here, he wants you to know this is the satanic whisper. And then finally, of course, the, the final temptation was, all of this stuff I'll give you, you don't need to go through the pain of the cross. You don't need to go through the pain of death. You don't need to go through the pain of rejection and betrayal. Just bow down and worship me and I'll give this all to you. And here it's as if Lucifer is, Satan is saying, Hey, listen, you want to worship me? Go to God if he'll have you. I went back and found some of those slides from our sermon on Matthew chapter 3, and I just want to remind you of them. The first word that Jesus hears in the wilderness is if. The reason for that is the enemy wants you to doubt your God-given identity. The last thing that Jesus heard before going into the wilderness was, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. The first thing he hears after that is, if you are the son of God. This is my son, if you are the son. When we come into those crucible, dark, scary moments, the temptation is to doubt our God-given identity as his sons and daughters. I just want to remind you of the, of the solid, concrete truth of that since the death and resurrection of Jesus. Romans chapter 8, verses 14 to 17. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. Can the church say amen? They are the sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery, of bondage again to fear. You received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Dad! Father! The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit and tells us that we are the sons and daughters of God. And if we are children, then we are heirs. And if we are heirs of God, then we are joint heirs with Christ. Man, this is just an absolute, one of the most profoundly simple and beautiful passages in in all of Scripture and in the writings of Paul that, that affirm in concrete terms, in absolute terms, our identity as sons and daughters of God. What's happening here is that Jesus is being pressed He's being tempted to doubt his basic identity. If you are, if you are, if you are, it's the satanic echo from the wilderness in chapter 3. We made this point in our sermon on Matthew chapter 3. When you know who you are, then you will know what it is you are supposed to do. I made this point to our teenagers. A lot of teenagers are aimless. They don't know what they want to do with their lives. Do I do this? Do I do that? Do I go to school? By the way, it's not just a teenage thing. There's lots of people that are basically plagued with aimlessness or directionlessness. Friends, part of the reason that people don't know what to do is they don't know who they are. Once you know who you are, you will know what you ought to do. Identity, then mission. Mark Twain famously said, the two most important days in your life are the day that you were born and then the day that you find out why. 
right? What am I here to do? Now, let's go to verse 45. Now, from the sixth hour until the ninth hour, there was darkness over all the land. We'll talk about that darkness next week because it's not just a physical darkness. It's not just an ambient darkness. There's something else going on here. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is, quoting again from Psalm 22, which we'll be in next week. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That is the opening verse of Psalm 22. Two times we have been exposed to Psalm 22 in Matthew chapter 27. There is a depth there. There is a significance there that we just don't have time to explore today, which is why we're going to have to do it next week. A whole sermon dedicated to the larger theology, the larger iceberg stability and theological depth of what's happening here. Some of those stood by, they misheard him. They thought, man, this guy's calling for Elijah. There's a, it sounds similar, Eli, Eli, short of Elohim. Is, it, is this guy calling for Elijah? Immediately, one of them ran and took a sponge and filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and offered it to him to drink. The rest said, hey, leave him alone. Hey, let's see if Elijah comes and saves him. <laughs> King of the Jews. Then Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Then behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom and the earth quaked and the rocks were split and the graves were opened and many bodies of the saints. Whoa, where's this going, Matthew? Many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. Whoa. And coming out of the graves after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. We'll come back to that when we talk about resurrection, but there is something going on here, and I'll just give you just a little glimpse of it. You will remember when Jesus came in Matthew chapter 21 into the temple, and he turned over the, te- uh, changers of the, uh, the, the money changers' tables, and he put a, a, a temporary cease to the temple activities. You will remember this, that, that people were, the children are crying out, Hosanna, Hosanna to the son of David, Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna. And then the priests say, hey, don't you hear what these kids are saying? They're referring to you as the son of David. They're treating you like you're a Messiah. And Jesus' response is, if these, if nobody would praise me, the rocks would cry out. Nobody is praising Jesus on the cross and the rocks cry out. The earth quakes, the rocks split. Matthew is making the point. When no one will praise Jesus, the earth itself will praise its creator. Now, here's a really crazy thing that's going on here. Check this out. I'm I'm indebted to my wife for this point, by the way. We took a trip down to the dentist yesterday, and I read through this passage of Scripture to my family, and I said, okay, guys, this is what I'm preaching on. I've been working on my sermon this week. If you were preaching on this passage, and we read through this second half of Matthew 27, what would you preach? I said, Landon, what would you preach? Jabel, what would you preach? Violetta, what would you preach? And I'm indebted to my wife for bringing this point out, and it's a great one. A reasonable and persuasive case could be made for Jesus to have done the following. You could make a case, a good case, for Jesus to have done these 12 things. Going back to the Gethsemane experience. Jesus is a man on a mission. He is a man so, so different than aimlessness and, and directionlessness and sort of wandering you know, lazily through life. Jesus is every other voice 
every other invitation, every other opportunity, every other thing that beckons him is, is as nothing to him because he is on a mission. He, something is directly in front of him and he is walking toward that and every other voice, every other audience, every other diversion is as nothing to him. He's a man on a mission. Check this out. You could make a reasonable and persuasive case for Jesus to not have drank the cup in the Garden of Gethsemane. His own internal desire was not to drink the cup. Three times he said, I don't want to drink it, I don't want to drink it, I don't want to drink it. You could make a case for Jesus not to have drank it. I mean, it was, after all, the very cup that contained the wrath of God. We'll talk about that next week. Number two, you could make a case for Jesus to get some rest. The disciples are sleeping. You know how it is when people around you are sleeping. Peter, James, and John were all carried away by the, you know, moment and the, 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 the slumber of the moment. Jesus, just take a rest. Jesus, you, you could make a case for Jesus delivering himself with the sword of Peter or with angels. Don't you think, Peter, I could pray right now and legions of angels would be dispatched to deliver me from this precarious situation? Jesus, deliver yourself. Jesus, defend yourself before the witnesses. Look at all the stuff the witnesses are saying about you. You know that they can't even get two witnesses to agree. Jesus, just speak up and show this thing for the farce that it is. Speak up, Jesus. Defend yourself. When Jesus made his way out of Caiaphas's, uh, out of the temple there, somebody smacked him on the back of the head. And then they're like, hey, prophesy, who struck you? Tell us. And Jesus could have been like, well, that was Reuben. Jesus knows. He, was, he could have been in instantaneous full possession of his divine faculties, omniscience, omnipotence, omnipresence, instantaneously. There are all these invitations to divert all these invitations to take a right, to take a left. Defend yourself before Pilate. Even Pilate was, Pilate was incredulous. Don't you hear all the stuff these guys are saying about you? Within the Roman legal code, Pilate was duty, or excuse me, Jesus was duty bound to defend himself. If he doesn't defend himself, he's presumed guilty. So Pilate's like, look, mate, I'm trying to get you off the hook here. My wife sent me a letter. I really don't want to do this. Can you help me out here a little bit? Defend yourself. Number seven, Jesus could have resisted the soldier's mockery. I mean, just with the snap of his fingers, with the blink of his eye, he could have just instantaneously paralyzed and immobilized every one of those soldiers and risen up through supernatural power, illumined himself with a grand and glorious incandescent light, and everybody would have been like, whoa, we're messing with a supernatural alien being, and they would have freaked out. Totally available to Jesus. Just a thought away. Just, just a, he, just, he just thinks it, and it's happening. He's presented the first time with the sour wine to numb the pain. No. Come down from the cross. There's an invitation. There's a giant temptation echoing the satanic voice of the wilderness. Save yourself echoing the satanic voice of the wilderness. He's calling for Elijah to help, which is actually quite fascinating because Elijah had come earlier in the Gospel of Matthew to encourage Jesus. We'll get to that in just two seconds. Finally, a fourth time or a second time, drink this sour wine to numb the pain. Jesus is a man on a mission. And I love this point and don't miss it. This is especially for my teenagers especially for my 20 and unders. Let the voice or the will of God drown out the call of the world and the doubts of your own heart. I want to say that to my teens. I want to say it to everybody, but I especially want to say it to my teens. Teenagers, set your mind on God. Set your mind on Jesus. And when the call comes to do this thing, when the call, if you know who you are and you know why you're on earth, you can walk in a direction and the clamor of the crowd and the call and the temptation of the world can be ignored. But you can fall into trouble and to difficulty and you can get waylaid when you don't know who you are or what you're doing. 
So then it's like, hey, let's get drunk. Hey, let's go out with these girls. Hey, let's go out with these guys. Hey, let's, you know, whatever. Whatever that thing is, it's really easy to get waylaid if you don't know who you are and why you're here. Jesus knew who he was and why he was there. So all of these other invitations were as nothing to him. All of these other invitations, even as attractive and potentially reasonable and persuasive as they were, Jesus was a man on a mission. And I want to appeal to my teenagers. Years ago, I preached a sermon. I preached a sermon on the death of John the Baptist and Herod's friendship with John the Baptist called Because of Those Who Sat. You can Google it if you want to. Preach it about eight years ago, maybe seven years ago. Because of Those Who Sat. And what ends up happening in that sermon, I'm not going to re-preach that sermon, but basically Herod beheads John the Baptist because of people. People were around, and it says, because of those who sat around, he did what he didn't want to do. John the Baptist was his friend. He didn't want to kill John. But because of those who sat, because there was a widespread cultural expectation that he would do the thing that he said he would do, and he didn't want to be embarrassed, because of those who sat by, he did this terrible and dastardly deed that he himself didn't want to do. And in that sermon, I said, look, I'm going to create a word. I'm sometimes accused of creating words. I don't knowingly do that unless I say it. And I'm going to do it right now. In that sermon, I created a word. I put together two words, the word God and the word audience. And that creates, the the contraction creates this word Godians. Keep that word in your mind. I hope you never unknow that word. I hope that you can, that word has stayed with me ever since the Spirit impressed me on it, you know, impressed me with it years ago. Godians. That God is the audience. He's the one for whom I'm living. These people here, I mean, I can't even tell you the names of most of the people I went to high school with. Right? Those people that the invitations and the opportunities seem so important and they seem so urgent at the time. They seem so inviting, so temptation, uh, so tempting. But now they're just nothing to me. There's nothing. They're just gone from me. And I just want to plead with my whole congregation, but especially my teens, the guardians. Make God, your audience. Live your life for an audience of the one. That's what Jesus is doing. Drink the sour wine? No. Come down off the cross? No. Don't drink the cup? No. Respond to Pilate? No. Respond to the false accusations? No. Jesus is on a mission. Every other competing voice is like those Bose ear-canceling headphones. He just, he just can't, all of that is canceled out because he's tuned into one voice, the voice of God, the audience of God, the Godians. A couple more things I'm going to leave you with and I'll let you go. Now, this really cool thing is happening here with the veil of the temple. And we talked last week, we gave 12 points of connection or 12 points of tension between Jesus and the temple. This is a story that Matthew's been telling from the beginning. Jesus in contrast with the temple. Jesus in competition with the temple. The temple used to be the place of God's action, used to be the place of God's presence, used to be the place of God's forgiveness, used to be the place of God's salvation. No longer. Jesus is now the place of God's action, God's presence, God's forgiveness, etc. And that comes to its final note here, its final symphonic crescendo note in Matthew chapter 27, verse 51. Then behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. That's significant. It was a very tall, uh, six or eight meters, tall veil. And in order, if a man was going to tear it, or if human beings were going to tear it, they would have made a cut at the bottom, and then they would have got a team of people to pull it apart, and it would have gone from the bottom to the top. But when Matthew makes the point, and there is some really fascinating points as to how Matthew would have known this. I'm not going to get into that right now. But when Matthew makes the point, based on later research, or maybe just the impress of the Spirit, that it was torn from the top to the bottom, this is God himself saying, I'm done with the temple. This is The lambs, the bullocks, the sheep, the sacrifices that were all going to the temple 
All of that is now done. We're done with that system. We're done with this building. We're done with the cedar. We're done with the gold. We're done with the wood. We're done with the marble. We're done with this building because it's all happening here now. When Jesus dies as the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world, the veil rents from the top to bottom, as we mentioned. The earth itself, the rocks cry out and we're split. Now, here's a really cool thing. Jesus, in, in, in parabolic pregnancy, anticipated this chapters before, years before, when he told this very interesting parable. Look at this, Matthew chapter 9, verses 15 to 17. And Jesus said to them, can the friends of the bridegroom mourn? Because they came and they, people came and they're like, hey, look, how come the, the disciples of John the Baptist fast, but your disciples are busy partying and drinking all the time? Drinking grape juice, by the way. And Jesus is like, well, that's easy to explain. Can the friends of the bridegroom mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? Man, they're having a great time because I'm here. But the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them. Then they will fast. Then Jesus tells this fascinating series of parables. Two parables. Three in Luke, two in Matthew. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. For the patch pulls away from the garment and the tear is made worse. Nor do they put new wine into old wineskins. Well, why not, Jesus? Because the wineskins will break and the wine will be spilled and the wineskins will be ruined. They put new wine into new wineskins and both are preserved. This is a really amazing thing that's happening here. Jesus, with the use of the word tear and the use of break or tearing, is saying something about me, something about my identity will not fit within Judaism as it is presently constructed. Something's going to burst. Something's going to break. Something's going to tear. Something's going to give. Jesus anticipated this in parabolic form years before, or at least a year and a half before. And so when Jesus dies and cries out, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, and the veil is rent, the old wineskins burst. Judaism, as it had, as it had existed for more than a millennium, is, is gone. Even to this day, only for a few more years, only for a few more years did the temple sacrifices con- continue. And with the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70, the temple sacrifices have stopped. Judaism as it is constructed today, and this is not a knock on Judaism. I have great respect for a lot of the teachings of Judaism and a lot of the sincerity therein. But Judaism as it is presently constructed today is not the Judaism that Jews would like to be practicing or talking about conservative practicing Jews. They want a temple. They want sacrifices. They want to be able to practice their own religion. But for two millennia now, it's not happening. The wineskin burst, my friends. The garment tore away. The veil of the temple was torn in two. You just cannot shoehorn Jesus into first century Judaism. It just doesn't work. I'll do that point next week. No, I won't. I'll do it this week. As I was reading and studying through the Gospel of Matthew, so many amazing things have happened. And this is the final point I want to make today. So many cool things have jumped out at me. And I've had people say to me, how do you see that? In fact, just yesterday, Carl was like, how did you see that? Man, I don't know. I don't know how I see it. I just read the text, and I read it again, and I read it again, and again, and again. And then it just comes, Jesus just shows me stuff. He'd show you the same stuff. But there are four really important mountains in the Gospel of Matthew. And the first is what I'm calling the Mount of Announcement. That's the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus announces the kingdom. Hey, this is what the kingdom's going to look like. Then you have what I call the Mount of Encouragement, which is the Mount of Transfiguration, where Moses and Elijah show up, and they're like, hey, Jesus, please carry on, because we think heaven is awesome. We think this is great. We really want you to press on. 
the Mount of Encouragement, which is really quite interesting because they're like, hey, he's calling for Elijah. He could have called for Elijah to come and help, but he didn't. Then you have the Mount of Judgment. When Jesus went out, we spent time on this. When Jesus went out of the temple, he went to the Mount of Olives, and he, he gave, not two stones will be left one upon another. He gave the prophecy of the destruction of Jerusalem. And then you have the Mount of Fulfillment, which is the Mount of Calvary. And I want you to kind of get this idea that in the Gospel of Matthew, you have these two preeminent mountains, the first and the last, the Mount of Announcement and the Mount of Fulfillment. I'll come back to that in just a second. The Mount of Announcement is the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes and all of that. And then the Mount of Fulfillment is Calvary. And this is how this happened. I'm just reading through the story of Matthew chapter 27, and it says that he's mocked and he's hit. He doesn't hit back. So I'm thinking, oh, that sounds like turn the other cheek. And then it says they took his clothes. And I'm like, oh, man, that sounds like Jesus saying, if somebody takes your coat, give him your cloak. And then they make him walk. And that sounds like when Jesus said, hey, look, if they ask you to go a mile, go with them too. And it dawns on me, wait a minute, I wonder if there's something else going on here. I wonder if Jesus, with intentionality, and Matthew, with tremendous chiastic creativity, is revisiting the Sermon on the Mount. And you know what? I read back through the Sermon on the Mount yesterday, and this is phenomenal. Check this out. First of all, number one, Jesus' death illumines the Beatitudes. Jesus' death illumines the Beatitudes. Let me just quickly remind you of them. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Jesus' spirit is utterly crushed. He went into the Garden of Gethsemane and said, My soul is exceedingly sorrowful even to the point of death. Blessed are those who mourn. Jesus has just been weeping in the Garden of Gethsemane. Blessed are the meek. Jesus has just been abused and mocked and scourged and given no retaliation. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, to do the right thing. They would rather do the right thing than any other thing. Blessed are the merciful. Jesus is treating the entire world with mercy. Father, forgive them. They do not know what they are doing. Blessed are the pure in heart. Even Pilate had to say, why? What evil has he done? There is no evil in him. There is no guile in him. There is no violence in him. Blessed are the peacemakers. Jesus dies on the cross and creates peace between God and man. And blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, which is exactly what's happening with the cross. Blessed are you when they revile you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. This is the cross event. Rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so persecuted the prophets they were before you. Jesus' death illumines the Beatitudes. Jesus said, a city that is set on a hill cannot be hid. Jesus is set on a hill called Golgotha. Jesus had said, you are the light of the world, and Jesus' death and resurrection is truly the light of the world. Jesus said that don't let your right hand know what your left hand is doing, but just just glorify your Father in heaven. Jesus here is glorifying his Father in heaven. Jesus said, don't think I'm come to destroy the law of the prophets. I didn't come to destroy, but to fulfill. And Jesus here in his death is fulfilling the law and the prophets, and specifically the covenantal curses that Moses had spoken of in Deuteronomy. Jesus had said, unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you have no hope of entering the kingdom. Jesus here hangs on the cross, and his righteousness stands in stark contrast and great excess, tremendous, tremendously exceeded, exceeded the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. Jesus said, don't even think to murder in your mind. Jesus could have thought to murder in his mind. He could have thought to kill in his mind, but he didn't. Not only did he not think of murder, not only did he not think of anger, he himself was murdered. 
Jesus said, bring your gift to the altar if your brother has something against you. Jesus has brought the gift of himself to the altar of the cross. Jesus said, agree with your adversary quickly in the Sermon on the Mount. Agree with him quickly. Jesus has agreed with his false accusers in Caiaphas' presence, and he's agreed with Pilate quickly. Jesus said, hey, if your right eye offends, pluck it out. If your right hand offends, cut it off so that you don't have to go to hell. Jesus went to hell. We'll talk about that next week so that others wouldn't have to. Jesus said, do not swear falsely when he was placed under oath by the high priest. Tell us if you're the son of God. He did not swear falsely. Jesus said, perform your oath to the Lord. And Jesus performs his oath before the Lord. Jesus did not resist an evil person when he was being jockeyed between the Roman soldiers or being smacked by the the people outside of the high priest's uh, quarters. He did not resist an evil person. Jesus said, turn the other cheek. And Jesus was smitten and gave the other cheek. Jesus said, if somebody takes your coat, give him your cloak. Jesus gave his coat. In fact, twice Matthew mentions his clothes in this. What a strange little thing to mention. But Matthew is telling a story. He gave his clothes. He, he was naked for us. He walked where he was compelled to walk. Jesus had said, if somebody makes you walk, go with them. Jesus is made to walk. They tried to make him carry his cross, but he lacked the physical strength to do it. Jesus said, love your enemies. And here he is truly loving his, and notice I put enemies in quotes because Jesus has no enemies. Can the church say amen? He blessed those who cursed him. He did good to those who hated him. He prayed for his persecutors, even on the cross. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. He forgave men their trespasses. Jesus said, lay up your treasure in heaven. Jesus laid his treasure up in heaven. His treasure is us. Jesus said, where your treasure is, that's where your heart will be. Jesus' treasure was where his heart was. It was with us. Jesus did not serve two masters. He said, you cannot serve two masters. Jesus serves only one master. He lives for the audience. Not in robotic insensitivity, but just in a passion to do what God had called him to do. He knew who he was and what he came to do. Jesus did not worry about his clothes. He said, don't worry about your clothes. Solomon, no, don't worry about that. You know, even the, the, the lilies of the field are arrayed with greater beauty than Solomon. Don't worry about your clothes. Five more. Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and everything else will take care of itself. Jesus on the cross is thinking of only one thing, God's kingdom and God's righteousness. And this is perhaps the most profound of all, and this is what we'll talk about next week. Jesus said, don't worry about tomorrow. When Jesus said, don't worry about tomorrow, it wasn't just a cute little platitude that you could knit with a piece of cross-stitch and put on a throw pillow in the guest bedroom. When Jesus said, don't worry about tomorrow, I believe that Matthew is creating a situation here and that Jesus himself is saying, even when tomorrow might be the end. When death is knocking at your door, don't worry about it. We'll come back to that tomorrow. I had something I was going to share with you, but I'll do it next week. I'll give you all that next week. Don't worry. You'll get it. He placed tomorrow in God's hands. Number 28, he did for others what he would want done for him. Jesus said, do unto others as you would have them do to you. This is the law and the prophets. Jesus bore good fruit. And finally, he built his house on the rock of God's will. Now check this out. Jesus not only talked the talk, that's the New Testament Sinai, that's Mount, the Sermon on the Mount. He walked the walk. That's the second mountain in Matthew, the second most important mountain, mountain, and that's the Mount of Calvary. Here's how I say it. You have the mountain of announcement and the mountain of achievement. You have the mountain of promise and you have the mountain of performance. 
Jesus and Matthew are recapitulating, revisiting the Sermon on the Mount. And at every step, I mean, this is just, the Lord showed me this yesterday in an, in an hour of just study, comparison. There are probably other parallels there that I missed and you might find. We'll come back to this point next week. So this is the thing I want to end on today. Jesus was guilty of being the king of the Jews. That was his accusation. He was guilty. That's why our sermon today is titled, The Guilty King. Here's a question I have for you, two questions. Is he guilty of being the king of you? Is Jesus guilty of being the king of you? Is he your guilty king? He doesn't look like a king. He doesn't act like a king. He doesn't carry himself like a king. But the point that Matthew is making, and the point that all the Gospels are making, and the point that all of Scripture is making, is that Jesus is the most unexpected and amazing king. And friends, today I want to say, Jesus is my king. And I want to ask you, is Jesus your king? Is Jesus guilty of being not only the king of the Jews, but being the king of yous. How many today want to say with me, Jesus is my king too? That guy's my king too. That's a, that's a king I can worship. That's a king I can live for. That's a king that if required, if God gave me the strength, I could, I could die for a king like that. Father in heaven, today we have spent some time at the foot of the cross. And I feel like today, Lord, we've gone for 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 breadth, and I'm hoping next week for depth. But Father, today we have been exposed to who you are, what's in your heart, and what's in the heart of Jesus. We know that these are the same thing. Jesus said, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. And Father, we've seen enough of this world's kings, this world's princes, this world's power brokers, this world's politicians. And we know that they can pass laws and they can wage wars, but they cannot cure the heart. They cannot make us who we were created to be. And Father, Jesus holds out to us a totally different, totally different situation, totally different opportunity, totally different invitation. An opportunity to have a different kind of king, a different kind of master, a different kind of lord, and a different kind of God. And today, Father, we respond to this supremely attractive, supremely unusual, and unexpected picture of who you are. And we respond with worship. We respond with a decision. We respond with our will. And we say, Father, we don't only want Jesus to be the king of the Jews, historically. We want Jesus to be the king of us today. And it is in his name that we pray. Let everyone say, amen. God bless you all. We'll see you next week. Have a great Sabbath. Hey, greetings from beautiful and sunny Kingscliff, Australia. I want to take just a moment of your time, first of all, to thank you for tuning in, watching the program. I trust it was a blessing to you and your soul, drawing you closer to God and his will for your life. I also want to let you know that we are planning a significant expansion of our existing media ministry here at the Kingscliff Church. To find out more about this expansion and how you can get involved, go to bringitkingscliff.com. You can go either to the homepage or to the Our Gifts page to find out how you can come alongside us and support 
not just with your viewership, but also financially and with your prayers. Hey, thanks again so much for watching and take care.